the article's leading title was Losing Faith, Why South Carolina is Abandoning Its Churches. Did you see that? Well, they told the story of declining churches, declining attendance, and these churches struggle to remain relevant in their communities. They also shared accounts of how some churches are trying new and innovative approaches to attract membership. Now, I have no qualms with the fact that I'm sure many churches are shrinking. And there's all kind of reasons for this decline. They're both varied and they're very complex. However, there was one significant reason that some of these churches are declining that was not mentioned, surprisingly, in this article or these articles. It is a failure to confess and proclaim the biblical Jesus to their communities. You see, in our days, many churches have subtly allowed their focus to shift away, to shift away from uh, proclaiming him as the only light in this world of spiritual darkness. Instead of telling us, the congregants and the community, of our total inability to save ourselves, of our need for righteousness that's outside of ourselves. Instead of telling these truths, instead we get Jesus is our helper toward self-improvement and cultural acceptance. A gospel that doesn't depend completely on salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ is no gospel at all. A church that doesn't proclaim this gospel is in fact not even a church. Church historian Stephen Nichols states the issue this way, if we understand Christianity only from a point of cultural power or cultural acceptance, then we will be ill-equipped to deal with opposition and persecution when the culture shifts and when cultural relevance wanes. We don't see this in the early church. The New Testament church of the first century of coming of age was in a context of was not in a context of cultural ascendancy. In fact, it was in the opposite. Christianity came of age in a marginalized culture. The cross was their symbol. How marginalized can that be? In Jesus' time, the Jewish people also rejected him in favor of a Messiah that could, that could deliver them from the cultural oppression of Rome. And just like today, they were looking for someone to lift them up out of their circumstances. But in today's passage, John presents Jesus as the only light in our spiritual darkness and the true word that leads us to eternal life. Only the eyes of faith can behold him in this way. And seeing him with these eyes of faith will transform us into sons of light. Let's read together, starting in verse 35 of chapter 12. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though, they had done, though that he had done many signs before them, 
they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he had blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now wanting to see you, wanting to see you clearly, Lord, as you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Reveal yourself now in our hearts. Prepare us to hear from you today, Lord. Plow deep our hearts of indifference. Plow deep our hearts of sin. Plow deep our hearts of unbelief. Send your spirit now, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, John is actually summarizing Jesus' ministry. He uses several very common metaphors that he's actually used throughout the whole book of John. The metaphors of things like light and walking. Um, But these metaphors are a means for us to understand what it means to believe in this biblical Jesus. And then later on in this passage, he condemns unbelief, all unbelief, and he defines it for us. And finally, he calls us to follow the true light of his nature and promises eternal life for those who walk on the path of his word. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. Firstly, in these verses, Jesus lights the way for those who will believe. Jesus lights the way for those who will believe. As I mentioned, these are basically the last words spoken to the public, to the Jewish nation, by Jesus before uh, he goes to the cross. From now on, in the book of John, He'll be mostly speaking just to his disciples, more privately. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. And they asked him a question. They asked him a question about the Messiah and why the Messiah had to be lifted up, if you remember. Why did they ask this question? And why didn't Jesus answer them? Have you thought about that? Well, Jesus didn't answer them because their question was faithless. 
It presumed on their version of a Messiah. Jesus' answer rather reflected his interest in a spiritual kingdom. He was interested in reclaiming a people for himself, not in a political or military solution. He wanted a relationship. In these two verses, James Boyce comments that these are the last will and testament to the Jewish nation of Jesus. Pretty strong uh, commentary there. These words serve to us as a reminder and a challenge, a warning and a promise for us to believe who the true biblical Jesus is and to know what Jesus' enduring message is. So first, these words are a reminder. Jesus Christ is this world's light. John's use of light imagery throughout his book speaks of the divine nature of God. He is one with God. He is the only true light, not a light, but the light. All light is his light, just as all truth is his truth. Jesus is this world's only light, true light. Next, he gives us a challenge. Jesus calls us to walk and to believe the light. Now, what does he mean to believe and to walk with the light? To believe Jesus is to take him at his word. It's to take him at his word and believe him, that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior of his people, and he is the creator of all creation, the Lord of creation. These are propositional truths. To walk means moving beyond these propositional truths and actually walking in the path of light by trusting them, imitating him, and thinking just like he thinks. And then the third thing these two verses serve as is a warning to us. We must walk while we have the light. We must walk while we have the light. Jesus hates the ignorance, the sin, and the evil that destroys us in this world. The light of this truth shines into our dark hearts, which drives away our dark enemies. The light of his truth does these things. There's an urgency stressed here. We must walk while we have the light, implying that we won't always have it. Walk while we have the light. And then he says, lest we are overcome by darkness. Now, I wasn't here last summer or last fall for the, uh, the great Columbia, South Carolina experience of the eclipse, total eclipse of the sun. I've talked to a lot of you guys, and I've talked to some friends of mine who described it as pretty impressive, pretty awesome. And what they described is as the moon began to move across the front of the sun, it's, it began to get dark. And in fact, what they were so impressed by is it got so dark that landscape lighting came on, the little cicada bugs started making their noise. Things started happening that normally happen at dusk. The darkness was increasing. And then, just as, just as quickly, a few minutes later, the sun uh, began to come out from behind the moon, or the moon moved in, from in front of the sun, and it began to get light again. The landscape's lights went off, the bugs stopped chirping and light returned to the world. Well, this is just a simple illustration of how the darkness is pushed back by the light of God and his promises in Christ. It's pushed back by a belief and obedience in these promises and a command of the word of God. Folks, we need to devour the word of God. We live in an age when there's so many other things that we can do with our time besides read God's word. We need to devour it. We need to pray for more faith, to believe it, to live by it, 
It is our source of truth and our source of light. And then the fourth thing, he gives us a command, he gives us a, a warning, a promise. The last thing he gives is the promise that if we, are, if we are to believe in the light, we will in fact become sons of light. This is a, an amazing thing about Jesus. Here we are at the end of his public ministry. The Jews are, the, 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 uh, the curtain is, is closing on their, on their uh, Savior. But yet Christ offers this promise, even at the end here, that if they believe in this light, you can be called sons of light. His final gracious promise to his people was that if we believe in him and walk in his paths, we will be identified with this light of Jesus. We will be reflectors of him in this dark world. Well, <clears throat> Jesus' last testimony had a varied effect on the listening Jewish crowd. But what he does next foreshadows judgment on their nation for their unbelief. God turns his back on them because they rejected his son. Their hardened hearts reflected God's judgment on them for their own decisions, for their own decisions concerning the Savior. You know what? It's the same today. God will eventually turn his back on those who reject Jesus. Let's look how. A couple of ways that we do that. First of all, in, the, in uh, verses 37, he says that Jesus hid himself from those who don't believe. Jesus hides himself from those who don't believe. Excuse me. God blinds some as a judgment for their sin. And this seems a little backward, but this is very scriptural. One commentator said that God's hardening of hearts is a judicial hardening of those who have already turned from the light to walk in darkness. They have already made a decision to reject Jesus. In Romans, Paul tells of, speaks of the sinners in the early part of Romans being given over or given up to their sins. Unbelief breeds other unbelief. Sin begets more sin. And darkness, the darkness of sin, in fact, overtakes the sinner. Well, what kind of dark unbelief threatens us? What kind of Unbelief threatens to take away your mind today into a dark place. Are you struggling to see and follow the path of light in your own life by listening to things like self-talk? Do the things that come into your mind remind you of what Scripture says? Or do they remind you of what the world says? Are we listening to this talk? Or are we listening to God's Word? Well, let's see how we can believe, how, how Jesus gives us three examples of belief here. There are three beliefs in this passage, and there's also three beliefs in this room today, I'll wager. The first is what we would call a hardened unbelief. We see in the, in the Jews, some believed, but some did not believe by implication. They rejected the person and the claims of Jesus outright, resulting in the judgment of unbelief, resulting in the hardening of their heart. Now today, Jesus is telling you, you people, if there's someone in here who rejects the person and claims of Jesus, Jesus is saying today, repent. Repent while there's still light. Repent, repent while there's still opportunity, while there's still time. Embrace the light of Jesus. He's come today to claim his own people. And then there's a second group of believers, 
quote unquote, those who are called unconfessed believers in this passage, verse 42, we say that they were afraid to confess Jesus as their Savior. Well, true belief must always be expressed, mustn't it? Romans 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. True belief must be expressed, must be confessed. Also, true belief seeks God's glory, seeks God's glory over man's. It tells us here in this passage that they were afraid. They were afraid of the, the Jews that they might have to suffer. It wasn't always that case. Back in Exodus, we see the Israelites seeing the great power and work of the Lord and calling out upon him as their, as their Savior and not fearing anything because God is on their side. Hear what Exodus 14 says. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his, and in his servant Moses. Israel didn't fear the Egyptians because they saw the work of God. Not the case with Jews in Jesus' time. However, from early on in the nation of Israel, we see the Jews going after this easy believism, if you will. A belief that fixes their problems with very little cost to them. We see in Jeremiah, uh, he asked the question, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They went after something that's not even a god. They changed the glory that was before them for something else. So I ask you, will a silent, man-pleasing, easy believism save us? Well, Scripture seems to say no. Scripture teaches that God condemns, in fact, this kind of belief. True belief in, uh, on the other side is very costly. Uh, in Jesus' day, it was costly. It meant that they would be cut off from the community, even from their families. Following Jesus was very costly then, but it's still costly today. In one of my favorite parables of Jesus, uh, Jesus describes this precious discipleship as a treasure hidden in a field, and for the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has to possess it. How valuable is our faith? How much do you value what Jesus has done for us? How does, it, how does it affect the way you use your time, your daily priorities? Are you prepared to give up everything? Following the Lord Jesus by obeying his word is a telltale mark, a telltale mark of true belief. It's not perfection. He never asked us to be perfect. He asked us to have a trajectory of obeying God's word, to move in that direction. Repentance from sin and a desire for righteousness through obedience is proof of his work in us. And, as a litmus test, a desire or a lack of desire to confess who the biblical Jesus is to those who are around us is also a good barometer of the value of our faith at any given moment. If we're afraid to confess Jesus to those around us, whether they be our children, our spouses, our fellow church members, our coworkers, our neighbors, if we're afraid, then maybe we don't value our faith the whole lot. You see, true belief can't help but reflect the true life 
the true light, who is the very object of our love. They need to see Jesus, and they see him as we reflect him for others to see in this darkness. Well, there was a third group of uh, believers, if you will, in this passage. You had the hardened unbelievers, you had the unconfessing believers, and now you have the true believers by, by a process of elimination. You had some that heard and believed. If you're concerned right now, like I, I was when I was looking at this passage, that I might be practicing a private Christianity, well, you're in great company. I think all of us struggle with this. We really do. All of us are fearful, aren't we? All of us are in love with the things of this world, aren't we? We struggle. We need God's grace to believe in the first place. But we need even more grace, a lot more grace, some of us, to confess our belief in Jesus to others. But you know what? God is faithful. Listen to what he says to us in Hebrews 4. He showers us with this needed grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a wonderful promise. He gives us this mercy, this grace that we need to do the things that he tells us to do. Now, we are extremely social creatures. We're created to be social, um, and it's something that we need to be in proximity with one another. It's the way God made us. And I found a little illustration, so forgive me here about this, that I thought was interesting. <clears throat> According to many Americans with registered emotional support animals, the difference between manageable and unmanageable anxiety could be as simple as owning a pet. Now, some of you own pets, which is, I do too, lots of them. Um, these animals provide support for emotional disorders, including anxiety and depression, PTSD, and much more. Listen to this. By simply being present when their owner becomes emotionally distressed. This aid has helped thousands of Americans overcome their anxieties and stressors by providing a helping hand through stressful situations. But what exactly is an emotional support animal? The definition is that an emotional support animal is an animal that, by its very presence, mitigates the emotional or psychological symptoms associated with a handler's condition or disorder. Pets do something for us. They help us. And that's not the point of the sermon. <laughs> so don't get that. While our pets are definitely, definitely good sources of companionship, and they are, and comfort in this life, and they are, coming close to Jesus, our creator, chases the darkness of sin and unbelief out of our hearts and brings the light of his eternal promises to us as our comfort. We can draw near to him every time we pray, every time we read and meditate on the word of God, we draw near to God. Jesus Christ himself has all the authority in heaven and on earth to bring every one of us from darkness to light, from unbelief to belief, and from sons of darkness to sons of light. His authority comes straight from the Father as he is one with the Father. The last section of this passage dealing with verses 44 and 50 says that Jesus' words bring eternal life to believers from the Father. Jesus' words bring eternal life to believers from the Father. So, after having said all this, who is the true biblical Jesus? Well, he's going to tell us in this, in this section. He tells us in verses 46 and 49 that Jesus came by the authority of the Father 
to be a light in this dark world. He came by the authority of the Father. He came to do the work of the Father. Colossians 1 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That was his work. He came to transfer us from this kingdom of darkness to this kingdom of light. Verse 48, Jesus establishes the Father's terms or commands for the ultimate judgment of the world and for relationship with mankind. You see, it tells us here that Jesus' first coming was not to condemn. It was not to judge. His first coming was to save. He will come again, though, and when he comes back again, it will be to judge, and he will judge on the basis of his word. Verse 45, Jesus is one with the Father, he tells us. Colossians 1 again reminds us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is one with the Father. We see God when we look at Jesus, don't we? And then the last verse, verse 50, tells us that believing that Jesus is God, that he spoke with authority of God, and then obeying his words will lead those who do to eternal life. That's it, isn't it? That's who the true biblical Jesus is. Beholding God incarnate in the person of Jesus. Many people uh, are in awe of beautiful places like uh, the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. And these places do display a form of glory that's unlike our daily experiences. However, if we look at verse 41 of this passage, we see something unique here, something extraordinary. John tells us that Isaiah saw the very glory of God, and as a result, he was changed. He tells us that this change resulted in Isaiah becoming a spokesman for God. So what did Isaiah see? Let me read a couple of verses of what he saw. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I heard the voice of the Lord, verse 8, saying, whom shall I send, and who shall, will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. Isaiah was changed, wasn't he? He was changed by seeing God. Something happens to all of us. Something happens to all of us when we behold God's glory. We too are changed. We become excited. We become talkative. We want to tell everybody about someone that is so magnificent, this Jesus. It's second nature. It's not hard, is it? When we love someone and are so excited by them, we can talk about him. We can confess him to others around us. But how are we to see Jesus when he's invisible? Well, Jesus knew our frailty, and he gave us some really positive, powerful aids. He knew 
that we were creatures of our senses. He knew that we were dependent on them. So he gave us the word, the Bible, and he gave us the sacraments to help us love and to worship his glory. It's in these things that we encounter the glory of God. In fact, today's communion table gives us a visible, visible sign and seal of God's glorious presence. It points us towards the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, and it seals us who believe into his family and into his glorious promises. What a wonderful, wonderful promise we have before us today. If you remember, last week's message was centered on the people's request that, we, that said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Let's look to see him today with the eyes of faith, through his word and through this family supper that we're going to partake of now. And as we do this, we too will be changed. We want to speak to others about his glory and about his wonders, and we will joyfully walk as sons of light in a dark world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are completely dependent on you. You have provided us with grace upon grace. You have provided us with a vision of yourself through your word. And Lord, you have provided us with these sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we come to to remember, to contemplate, to be strengthened and nourished by your body and blood, Lord. This is what we do today. We want to see you today, Lord. So display yourself. May you bring much glory to yourself. And may we give you the sacrifice of praise, even in these sacraments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.